Hello, this is Father Michael Eads from the Toronto Oratory, and you're listening to Lexio et Oratio, a short spiritual reading podcast followed by a reflection. The Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales. Preface. Dear reader, I request you to read this preface for your own satisfaction as well as mine. The flower girl, Glycera, was so skilled in varying the arrangement and combination of her flowers that out of the same kinds, she produced a great variety of bouquets. So that the painter, Palsius, who sought to rival the diversity of her art, was brought to a standstill. For he could not vary his painting so endlessly as Glycera varied her bouquets. Even so, the Holy Spirit of God disposes and arranges the devout teaching that he imparts through the lips and pen of his servants with such endless variety that although the doctrine is ever one and the same, their treatment of it is different according to the varying minds whence their treatment flows. Assuredly, I neither desire nor ought to write in this book anything but what has been already said by others before me. I offer you the same flowers, dear reader, but the bouquet will be somewhat different from theirs because it's differently made up. Almost all those who have written concerning the devout life have had chiefly in view persons who have altogether left the world, or at any rate, they have taught a manner of devotion that would lead to such total retirement. But my object is to teach those who are living in towns, at court, in their own households, and whose calling obliges them to a social life, as far as externals are concerned. Such persons are apt to reject all attempt to lead a devout life under the plea of impossibility, imagining that, like as no animal presumes to eat of the plant commonly called Palma Christi, So no one who is immersed in the tide of temporal affairs ought to presume to seek the palm of Christian piety. And so I have shown them that like as the mother of pearl lives in the sea without ever absorbing one drop of salt water, and as near the Chelidonian Isles springs of sweet water start forth in the midst of the ocean, And as the fire moth hovers in the flames without burning her wings, even so, a true steadfast soul may live in the world untainted by worldly breath, finding a wellspring of holy piety amid the bitter waves of society and hovering amid the flames of earthly lusts without singeing the wings of its devout life. Of a truth, this is not easy. And for that very reason, I would have Christians bestow more care and energy than heretofore on the attempt. And thus it is that while conscious of my own weakness, I endeavor by this book to afford some help to those who are undertaking 
this noble work with a generous heart. It is not, however, my own choice or wish that brings this introduction before the public. A certain soul, abounding in uprightness and virtue, sometime since conceived a great desire through God's grace to aspire more earnestly after a devout life and craved my private help with this view. I was bound to her by various ties and had a long observed her remarkable capacity for this attainment. So I took great pains to teach her and having led her through the various exercises suitable to her circumstances and her aim, I let her keep written records thereof to which she might have recourse when necessary. These she communicated to a learned and devout religious who believing that they might be profitable to others, urged me to publish them in which he succeeded the more readily that his friendship exercised great influence upon my will and his judgment, great authority over my judgment. So in order to make the work more useful and acceptable, I have reviewed the papers and put them together, adding several matters carrying out my intentions. But all this has been done with scarce a moment's leisure. Consequently, you will find very little precision in this work, but rather a collection of well-intentioned instructions explained in clear, intelligible words, at least that is what I have sought to give. But as to a polished style, I have not given them a thought, having so much else to do. I have addressed my instructions to Philothea as adapting what was originally written for an individual to the common good of souls. I have made use of a name suitable to all who seek after the devout life. Philothea meaning one who loves God. Setting then before me a soul who through the devout life seeks after the love of God. I have arranged this introduction in five parts. In the first of which I seek by suggestions and exercises to turn Philothea's mere desire into a sincere resolution, which she makes after her general confession by a deliberate protest followed by Holy Communion in which giving herself to her savior and receiving him, she is happily received into his holy love. After this, I lead her on by showing her two great means of closer union with the divine majesty the sacraments by which that gracious Lord comes to us and mental prayer by which he draws us to him. This is the second part. In the third part, I set forth how she should practice certain virtues most suitable to her advancement, only dwelling on such special points as she might not find elsewhere or be able to make out for herself. In the fourth part, I bring to light the snares of some of her enemies and show her how to pass through them safely and come forth unhurt. And finally, in the fifth part, 
I lead her apart to refresh herself and take breath and renew her strength so that she may go on more bravely afterwards and make good progress in the devout life. This is a bickering generation, and I foresee that many will say that only religious and persons living apart are fit to undertake the guidance of souls in such devout ways. That it requires more time than a bishop of so important a diocese as mine can spare, and that it must take too much thought from the important duties with which I am charged. But dear reader, I reply with Saint-Denis that the task of leading souls towards perfection pertains above all others to bishops, and that because their order is supreme among men, as the seraphim among angels. And therefore, their leisure cannot be better spent. The ancient bishops and fathers of the primitive church were, to say the least, as devoted to their duties as we are. Yet they did not refuse to undertake the individual guidance of souls that sought their help, as we see by their epistles, thereby imitating the apostles who, while reaping the universal world harvest, yet found time to gather up certain individual sheaves with special and personal affection. Who can fail to remember that Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Onesimus, Thecla, Appia, were the beloved spiritual children of St. Paul? As St. Mark and St. Petronilla were of St. Peter. For Baronius and Galonius have given learned and absolute proof that St. Petronilla was not his carnal but spiritual daughter. And is not one of St. John's canonical epistles addressed to the elect lady whom he loved in the faith? I grant that the guidance of individual souls is a labor, but it is a labor full of consolation, even as that of harvesters and grape gatherers, who are never so well pleased as when most heavily laden. It is a labor that refreshes and invigorates the heart by the comfort that it brings to those who bear it, as is said to be the case with those who carry bundles of cinnamon in Arabia Felix. It is said that when the tigress finds one of her young left behind by the hunter in order to delay her while she carries off the rest of her clubs, she takes it up, however big, without seeming overweighted and speeds only the more swiftly to her lair, maternal love, lightening the load. How much more readily will the heart of a spiritual father bear the burden of a soul he finds craving after perfection, carrying it in his bosom as a mother her babe, without feeling weary of the precious burden? But unquestionably, it must be a really paternal heart that can do this. And therefore, it is that the apostles and their apostolic followers are accustomed to call their disciples not merely their children, but even more tenderly still, their 
little children. One thing more, dear reader. It is too true that I who write about the devout life am not myself devout. But most certainly, I am not without the wish to become so. And it is this wish that encourages me to teach you. A notable literary man has said that a good way to learn is to study, a better to listen, and the best to teach. And St. Augustine, writing to the devout Flora, says that giving is a claim to receive and teaching a way to learn. Alexander caused the lovely Campaspe, who was so dear to him, to be painted by the great Apelles, who by reason of contemplating her as he drew, so graved her features in his heart and conceived so great a passion for her that Alexander discovered it and pitying the artist, gave him her to wife depriving himself for love of Apelles, of the greatest thing he had in the world, in which, says Pliny, he displayed the greatness of his soul as much as in the mightiest victory. And so, friendly reader, it seems to me that as a bishop, God wills me to frame in the hearts of his children not merely ordinary goodness, but yet more his own most precious devotion. And on my part, I undertake willingly to do so, as much out of obedience to the call of duty as in the hope that while fixing the image in others' hearts, my own may perhaps conceive a holy love, and that if his divine majesty sees me deeply in love, he may give her to me in an eternal marriage. The beautiful and chaste Rebecca, as she watered Isaac's camels, was destined to be his bride and received his golden earrings and bracelets. And so I rely on the boundless goodness of my God that while I lead his beloved lambs to the wholesome fountain of devotion, he will take my soul to be his bride, giving me earrings of the golden words of love and strengthening my arms to carry out its works, in which lies the essence of all true devotion, the which I pray his heavenly majesty to grant to me and to all the children of his church, that church to which I would ever submit all my writings, actions, words, will, and thoughts. Annecy, France, St. Magdalene's Day, 1608. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. St. Francis de Sales, the Bishop of Annecy, wrote this book 14 years before he died. He died in 1622. 400 years ago this year. And this book can be compared to the imitation of Christ. And notice at the beginning what St. Francis de Sales says. 
He says, there are many books that were written for people who have left the world completely or are encouraging people to do so. But his book is not written in that way. And he has in mind the imitation of Christ, for example, that wonderful book, that book which has sold more than Francis de Sales' book, that book which has sold more than any, every other book except the Bible. But the imitation of Christ is clearly written for priests, for monks, for religious, for people who have pledged themselves to live in a monastery, away from the world, away from the things of this world. And of course, a book like that has much application to every Christian. And read in the right way, it is daily and fruitful reading for everyone. But Francis de Sales wants a book tailor-made for people in the world. Now, of course, the book was written 400 years ago, and so it needs a bit of adapting. But still, the fundamental insights of this book are as applicable today as they were when he wrote it. And like St. Philip Neri, he was trying to help people be saints in their own homes. And what is a saint for Francis de Sales? Someone who has holy love. Someone who, he says, lives a devout life. Someone who wants union with God. And in this book, he will show people living in the world how to become true lovers of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.